so this is a day, am I? This is a day that I love to preach. I love thinking about our students. I love thinking about their lives. And I love finding that perfect text to kind of reflect back on the journey that they have traveled on. And so pretty early on, I was actually driving down the road, and I got to thinking about this group of, of uh, seniors, and the text that popped into my mind was 1 Corinthians 10.4. And I'm just going to read that for you, or at least I'm going to read the second half of uh, verse 4. It says, For they drank from the, same, from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And so the Apostle Paul is looking back on the wilderness period in Israel's history, and he is encouraging them. He, he, he is saying that God was committed to his people, and, and the rock that God caused the water to flow from, that that very rock was Jesus. And that verse just gives me goosebumps. It's like in those hardest times when your lips are cracked and, you're, and, and you have that cotton mouth, and you're just desiring water so much, like in those moments when you're nourished, it's because God is always with you. And I'm like, that is such an encouraging text. I'm totally going to preach that. And because my mind works the way that it does as I'm driving down the road, I start thinking of other illustrations, of other stories, of other things that I could say to buttress this point about a God that is committed to you and a God who is always with you, especially in your darkest, hardest times. And so I thought of the movie Ben-Hur. And if you know much about that movie, it's based upon a novel that was written to bring people to Jesus. And so in this story, Jesus is kind of a periphery character who just shows up in the most important times, in those dramatic moments. Jesus shows up. And so Judah Ben-Hur is a man who's born into an elite Hebrew family, and through a twist of fate, he becomes a prisoner and a slave, and he's being drugged across the desert by a battalion of Roman guards. And they're chained, and, and they're drugged across this desert, and these prisoners look bad. I mean, they are thirsty. And they get to this little village, and in this village, there's a well, and the peasants are bringing water out. And the Romans are screaming, soldiers first, soldiers first. And so they take the water to the soldiers and, you know, they're drinking it and they're wasting about half of the water. And the, and the poor slaves are just dying of thirst. And pretty soon it's, it's nearly kind of comical. They start to water the horses that the Roman soldiers are, are riding. And the Hebrew slaves are so thirsty. And then finally they're just about to get to Judah, Ben-Hur. And a soldier says, no, not him. He doesn't get any water. And Charlton Heston plays Judah Ben-Hur, and he starts shaking. He is convulsing. He needs this water bad. figure appears with perfect hair and a robe, and, and he kind of floats in, and it never shows his face, but you're like, that's Jesus. I know it. And he gets a cup, and he comes down to Judah Ben-Hur to give him a drink, and then the soldier grabs his whip, and he says, I said not that man. And then, this soul, and then this figure, he doesn't levitate, but he kind of seems to grow a little bit. And then the soldier's frightened and backs down. And then Jesus very gently leans down and gives water to Judah Ben-Hur. And he drinks and he drinks and he drinks. And then pretty sure you're like, I think this is a miracle because that cup should be empty by now. But Jesus, the source of water, just continues to pour from that cup that never ends. And Judah Ben-Hur drinks and his thirst is quenched, and then he looks up, and you see him looking into the eyes 
of Jesus. And you're like, that's a good story. And it fits so good with 1 Corinthians 10, 4, pointing back to that time in the wilderness where the rock they drink from is Jesus. And I'm like, I'm totally going to tell that story. And then I thought about a book that I read probably every year, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And he writes about a woman that was in a concentration camp. And for many years, she was confined to this one single hut. And when he speaks to this this woman, she says, I'm grateful that fate has hit me so hard. In my former life, I was spoiled, and I did not take spiritual accomplishments seriously. And then pointing through the window of the hut, she says, this tree here is my only friend I have in my loneliness. And through that window, she could see just one branch of a chestnut tree. And on that branch were two blossoms. And then she says, I often talk to this tree. And Viktor Frankl startled by this. He, he's wondering if she, is, if she is delirious. And then he asked her, does the tree ever speak back? And the woman says, yes. It says to me, I am here, I am here, I am life, eternal life. I'm like, that's a good story about how this woman is in her darkest time, that, that she's sitting in a concentration camp, and how God is calling to her as she begins to take her spiritual life seriously, and how Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches, and the tree of life that's found in the beginning of the Bible. And I'm like, that story will preach. And then there's one final connection that I made as I'm driving down the road, and I'm thinking about this very sermon and probably everybody has been to the home of an aunt or a grandmother or perhaps in their own home, of which there's a framed poem, probably in the kitchen. And it'll have the background of, of a beach for sure, and then maybe the face of Jesus. And then this poem reads, One night I dreamed a dream, and in this dream I walked along the beach with Jesus. And as we walked along the beach, up in the sky, scenes from my life, flashed and then we walked my entire life and then I and then we get to the end and then I turn to Jesus and say Jesus you promised me you would always be there for me that I would never be alone and yet in the very hardest times of my life in those darkest moments in those wilderness times I looked down at the beach and there was only one set of footprints and Jesus turns and says child I'd never abandon you And those hardest times when there was only one set of footprints in in the sand, that was when I carried you. (laughs) It's a good poem. It's a little cheesy. It's a little off-brand for me to tell. But I was thinking about these things. I was making connections. And I'm like, I want this sermon to be so encouraging. I want to talk about Jesus being, being that source of life in the wilderness and how Jesus is always there for us. And church, that is absolutely true. But then I did something dangerous. I went and read that verse in context after I got out of my car because I didn't read while driving down the road. And in context, verse actually serves as a warning. And so I do want to encourage you this day, but I also want to step into the warning that Paul gives us. And so um, I'm actually going to back up to first. Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to be in this text for the rest of our time here. So in verse 24, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. How you live your life 
matters. The choices that you make in life matter. That when all of us are born, we're born into a race. And it's possible to lose the race. It is possible to lose your faith. It's possible to waste your life. And I don't want us to waste our life. In verse 25, he says, Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And so I think about Olympian athletes. I think about how they wake up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning and how their whole day is structured and how they train and they go to coaching and they watch their, their, their nutrition and they go and do hours and years and decades of training for those Olympic games that hit every four years. And I looked this up. In 2018, if you take the Olympic medals, the gold medal from 2018, and you melt it down, it's actually mostly silver. Do you know how much it's worth? $555. Decades of training. Decades of work to get a trophy that when you melt it down actually isn't all that valuable. But what about the trophies that we work for? Every car that you've ever driven that you enjoy that new car smell is one day going to end up in a junkyard. Every house that you've ever lived in, every house you've ever owned is one day going to be owned by somebody else that forgets your name. And even that house is one day going to be a pile of rubble. I think about the first iPod that I ever bought. It was like $350 when I really didn't have that much money to spend. And how I just treasured this thing and that little spinny wheel that would click. Loved that thing. It's in a landfill right now. All of our treasures eventually become trash. Paul is telling us, work for something that lasts. 26, he says, Therefore, I do not run like someone who is running without aim. And I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. He says, no, I strike my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Can you imagine a runner in a marathon that doesn't run the path but just runs wherever they want? They have no chance to win. Or a boxer who just comes out, the bell goes ding, ding, and they just walk out and start throwing haymakers in the air. They're never going to win the fight. Paul says you have to have a plan. You have to have a purpose. You have to know what you're doing in order to win the race. Paul's answer to this is self-discipline. He says, I, I strike blows to my body. I make it my slave. I tell myself no to things that God has said no to. And church, we live in a time and place in which there are megaphones shouting, do what makes you happy. And Paul says, I use self-discipline. Aristotle writes, I count him braver who overcomes his own desires than him who conquers his foes. For the hardest victory is over self. The hardest person to say no to is not your foe, it's yourself. And so then Paul is going to, to talk about three physical realities, three ways in which God shows his commitment to his people in that wilderness time. Uh, chapter 10. He says, for I, do know, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. So the first physical reality, the, the, the first thing Paul talks about is how God physically navigates his people through the wilderness 
time period. The, there was a cloud they followed by day, and when the Red Sea parted, that there was a path through it, that he physically navigated them through life. That's one way he showed that he was committed to them. Seniors, since you guys have been in school, okay, pick, pick any random first day of school. There's an alarm that goes off or probably an adult that comes in and wakes you up and says, it's time to go. And you wake up, and then you're navigated to school. And you have a piece of paper that on the first day they give you, it's called your schedule, it says, go to this room and sit here until the bell goes ding, ding. And so you sit there for around an hour, and then the bell says ding, ding, and then you look down and it tells you the next place to go. And you do this for like seven times a day for like 13 years of your life. You physically are navigated through life for your own good. I know you don't think it's for your own good, going to school for 13 years, but it really is. For your own good, God navigated his people through the wilderness. The second thing that uh, God did is, uh, verse 2, it says, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Well, Moses was their earthly leader. He was their guide. He was the one who gave them the law. He's the one that helped them in this time of their lives. It's one way God showed commitment to Israel. Seniors, you guys have had parents, and grandparents, and people at church, and teachers, and mentors, and people who have poured into you that, it, that have helped guide you through life, that have helped give you the law. The third thing that he talks about here, verse 3, he says, they uh, all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And so God physically provided for Israel when they were in the wilderness. He gave them quana. He gave them quana. Yeah, he, that's the mishmash of the quail and the manna. You make a sandwich. Um, he gave them quail. He gave them manna. And then, and then he gave them water. And the very water they drank from, so there's no doubt about it, is from God. Uh, Paul, Paul says that that very rock was Christ. And so, seniors, you've been physically provided for. You, you have had food. You've had clothing. You've had shelter. You've had everything that you need and a whole lot of what you want. And so that's one way God shows his commitment to Israel in, in the wilderness is he physically took care of them. And then look at this, at this first word of verse 5. Because they have such a great platform. They have such a great platform for leaving bondage, traveling through the wilderness, and making it to the promised land. They have this wonderful platform. And yet, verse 5 says, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And it's like, how did they go wrong? How did they waste their lives? How did they not go from bondage to the promised land? What happened? And so I debated if I should do this or not. But if we're going to step fully into the encouragement of Scripture, I feel like we, that we have to fully step into the, the warnings that Scripture has for us as well. And so class of 2022, God has blessed you. God has navigated you through life. God has given you leaders and mentors to love you and to give you the law. And God has physically taken care of you. And nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of the class of 2022, and their bodies were scattered across Lee County. It's hard to hear. <laughs> Hits me hard. I'm thinking about these kids that I love, and I'm like, I don't want this to be true, but as long as we're on the path, I'm going to go all the way down it. Taylor Street Church of Christ, God has blessed you, God has loved you, God has been committed 
to you. God navigated you to this time and to, and to this place. God has given you leaders. He's given you men and women and elders and deacons and teachers. Taylor Street Church of Christ, you've never lacked for any physical resource. God has abundantly blessed you. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of Taylor Street Church of Christ, and their bodies are scattered in downtown Hobbs. I hope you feel what I feel right now, but I'm going to go one step further. Lance Havens, God has physically navigated you through life. God has moved you across three different states, and every time it was for your good, and good things happened to you in those places. Lance Havens, God has given you such great mentors. He has given you people to admire, people that have given you the law, people that have filled you up, people that have guided you into being the person that you are today. Lance Havens, you have lived abundantly. You've never lacked for anything. You have such an incredibly amazing life when it comes to physical, material things. And nevertheless, God was not pleased with Lance, and his body was scattered in the wilderness. Man, this is so much better when Doug does it. It's like John 3, 16, and he says, For God so loved the world, but you take world out and you put your name in. A whole lot better when Doug does this. But Paul is screaming with a megaphone. He's willing to allow us to feel as uncomfortable as all of us feel right now because he is shouting, Don't waste your life. Don't die in the wilderness. Make it to the promised land. And so he's willing for us to feel as uncomfortable as we all feel right now. And then he's going to give us three spiritual tests for us to run upon ourselves. He says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So his first test to make sure that you don't end up as spiritual roadkill is what's in your heart. And, and the biblical word that Paul is going to use here is idolatry. If you have anything on the, on the throne of your heart other than Christ the King, that's idolatry. What do you love? What are you willing to suffer for? What are you, what are you willing to sacrifice for? And so the, the second one kind of follows the first one, so I'm going to reread part of seven. He says, do not be I, I, idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And so that points back to Exodus 32 when Moses is up on the mountain and and the text says that the people that they sat down to eat and drink well eating and drinking by itself there's nothing wrong there but in the context it seems like they're indulging in such a way that is not honoring to God and then they got up to indulge in revelry after Aaron accidentally made the golden calf and so if the first test is what's in your heart the second test is what do you find pleasure in and this world has lots of things that they want Christians to find pleasure in that God has said no to. And then continuing that thought in verse 8, he says, We should not commit sexual sin as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Well, that points back to the count of Numbers 25 when the Moabite women come out to the Hebrew men and entice them to engage in sexual sin and then turn their hearts to the false gods of Moab. Paul's warning us, Church, one way that you can lose your faith, one way that you end up dead in the desert and not in the promised land, one way that you can waste your life is what you find pleasure in, what you swipe on, what you, what you choose to crave, what you choose to indulge in. It goes back to that self 
control. And then the third test is our mouth, the words that we speak. In verse 9, he says, We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And so that points back to when the Israelites were grumbling against Moses and questioning the plan of God. They're questioning uh, God's authority in, in their life and God's plan. Verse 10 says, And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. And so questioning proper authority and complaining is just like something we take very lightly. Well, God doesn't. And Paul says, the words that are coming out of your mouth can cause you to waste your life, can cause you to die in the wilderness. And so the three tests that Paul asks us to run is, what's in your heart? What do you truly love? What, what does your body crave? What do you indulge in for pleasure with your body? And then the last test is what's coming out of your mouth because we all know that Jesus says that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so Paul is warning us, don't waste your life. Don't end up dead in the wilderness. And then in 11, he says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. And I love this phrase, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. We are living in an epic time. We are living after the birth, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the culmination of thousands of years of history that God has written, that the culmination of all of that has fallen upon us. And that we should look back at these warnings and we should take our spiritual lives seriously. And so in 12, he says, So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Run these three tests if you think you're standing firm. What do you truly love? What are you willing to sacrifice for? What's, what's really in the center of your heart? And then the second test is, what do you find pleasure in? If it's things God has said no to, you're in danger. And then the third test is, what are the words that are coming out of your mouth? And so I want to talk a little bit about our seniors now. There's one thing about Ethan and Harrison both, and that's, Literally nothing bothers them. I try to pick on them. I try to call them funny names. I try to tell them, I try to, tell them to do things that can't be done. And they're just kind of like, huh. They're just, they're just very chill. They're very mellow. I've been with Harrison in a church van with too many people in lines at Six Flags that were way too long. I've been with him on days at Bandina that were way too hot. He never complains about anything. Now, there is one thing about Harrison that you need to know. Occasionally, I'll be counting my sheep, and I'm missing one, and it's Harrison, and he's gone. But before I panic, all right, I think to myself, where's the pretty girls? Because if you go find the pretty girls, you'll find Harrison, and he'll be grinning ear to ear, and he'll have his phone out trying to get a number, um, Ethan and Harrison both have brothers that are a little more outspoken. That I think of Adam and Hunter as kind of being like Apostle Peters. That they don't mind telling you what they think, and they don't mind telling you maybe what you should think. And if they're kind of the Apostle Peter, then their brothers are kind of Andrews. They're kind of quietly going about their business. Uh, you might not notice them as much, but they're generally doing what they're supposed to be doing. When I think of Ethan and Harrison, I also think of two 
young men that have suffered loss in life, that have walked that wilderness desert road of suffering and of mourning, and how, and how God and people in this very room have comforted them and have led them along that path. When I think of these two young men, um, I think of people that have a great family legacy of faith, and not just legacy of faith in general, which is beautiful, but a legacy of faith right here at Taylor Street. And how when, when, when you track their family trees, you're talking about parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and I don't know how far it goes after that, but, but we're part of the roots of this very church family here. I think of, of people that God has been committed to, that, that God has kept his promises to Ethan and to Harrison. And so today, I want to challenge the two of you, and I want to challenge all of us to stand firm and see that we do not fall. That God has, be- has been committed to these two young men, and he's been committed to all of us. I want to call on us to be committed to God. And so I, I want to finish with one more story. Uh, Pete Maravich, if, if you know basketball, he's one of the five to ten greatest players to ever live. He was a phenom from the time he was in middle school. He was a coach's kid, and he trained and trained and trained and trained, and everybody knew that, that uh, he was going to be an unbelievable star from the time he was 11 or 12 years of age. He went to college. He set dozens of records. He won championships. When he got drafted to play in the NBA, he was one of the first players to, to get a million dollars just to sign his contract to play a sport. He won so many trophies. He won so many awards. He was on the cover of so many magazines. And after he retired from the NBA, in his eyes, a lot of those trophies started to become trash. They started to not matter as much. And he slipped into a depression. And then one day, he had an encounter. And he became a Christian. And so he went on James Dobson's radio show on January 5th, 1988, to talk about this great transformation. And James Dobson's ho- uh, staff hosted a three-on-three pickup basketball game every week, and they said, wouldn't it be great if we had Pistol Pete Maravich play in our pickup game? And so one of the greatest NBA players to ever play the game is playing a bunch of guys that work for a Christian radio show. And they had a great time, and they played, and he said that he felt great. And then Dr. Dobson... Ha- had his back turned, and when he turned back around, Pete Maravich, at the age of 40, is laying face down on the ground, and they started CPR immediately, and, and Pete Maravich died in James Dobson's arms on that day at the age of 40, and so James Dobson goes home that night, and he talks to his son. His son was 17 years old at, at, at the time, and he told him, what happened to Pete today was not an isolated tragedy. This is the human condition. Sooner or later, someday, somebody is going to tell you that I'm gone, that I've died. And I want you to be there on that grand resurrection morning. I will be looking all over heaven for you. Be there because that's the one thing that matters, that you stay true to Christ and that you are found worthy to spend eternity with me and 
your mom and your other friends on that day. Be there. Paul is willing to warn us because on that grand resurrection day, he doesn't want to look for the people from the church in Corinth and for them to have wasted their life, for them to have their bodies scattered throughout the wilderness. He wants to see them in the promised land. I preach this sermon today because I want all of you to be there. Harrison, on that resurrection day, I want to look for heaven for you, and I want to find you. Ethan, on that resurrection day when God's gathered his people, I want to look for you, and I, find, and I want to find you there. I want to see all of you there, and I want all of you to see me there. I want us all to be there because it's the only thing that matters. Today, if you have needs, if you need to repent, if you need to put on Jesus in the water, if you need to do anything to make sure that you're there, come as we stand and sing.